Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go to get your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earthtobrit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's, B-R-I-T-T. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is a Yellow Wave production. season two here on earth to brit we've talked a lot about crime true crime murder serial killers shit gone awry wrongful convictions stuff like that and within all of those episodes of course i've dabbled with psychology because i can't help myself however if you remember season two is about true crime and psychology well this time we're going to focus mostly on psychology. Granted, we're going to touch a lot on the topics as far as what makes up a killer's brain, why do people kill, what happens when people kill, all the studies done, all the research, all that amazing and fascinating stuff that literally makes me drool every time just thinking about it. But we're also going to talk about things you might not have heard about before, like I'm talking specifics, like what happens when I can't even, I I can't say it without giving too much away, but we're going to go in deep. We're going to do a deep dive because that's what we do here on Earth to Brit. Okay. And we are going to look at some things that have happened, actual studies, visions and um, images of brains during these studies. It's fascinating. It's wild. And if you know anything about psychology or if you're kind of curious about this stuff and have been following following it in any way, shape, or form, you're probably not going to be surprised. But for those of you who have no idea or just have never had the time or had the inspiration or desire to learn about this, buckle up, get ready, because shit gets interesting real quick. Let's do it. of the hour as far as this episode goes hands down James Garbarino who is an author and professor at Loyola University at Chicago he has specialized in studying what causes violence in children how they cope with it and how to rehabilitate them Garbarino has served as a consultant or advisor to a wide range of organizations including the National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse the National Institute for Mental Health the American Medical Association, the National Black Child Development Institute, the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Advisory Board on Child Abuse and Neglect, and the FBI. On top of all that, Garbarino's work is associated with the School of Human Ecology at Cornell University under the leadership of Yuri Bronfenbrenner. (laughs) Sorry, you guys, I don't know if I said that right who began Head Start programs in the U.S. So Garbarino, he's written on the causes of violent behavior in children and how they cope with stress. He has studied the impact of war on children, including children in Kuwait, Iraq, Bosnia, and Croatia. He's also conducted several interviews with children who have been convicted of violent crimes in the United States. And he concludes that abuse and neglect at an early age are contributing causes to the violent behavior of these children. 
That's important. You cannot, you cannot tell me that's not important. He has served as an expert witness involving issues of trauma, violence, and abuse in both civil and criminal trials. Garbarino and his co-authors have also conducted lots of interviews with other high school students and teachers about bullying and social problems at school to help understand ways to improve the school environment. He recommends that violence prevention begin at a very early age by recognizing underlying causes and addressing them before they expand. So simple, yet apparently not done before. He advocates programs that provide assistance to young, at-risk children and parents, including a home visiting program that provides home visitors to young mothers at risk to help with child care and provide advice about child rearing. Children who have benefited from this program have reduced dropout and delinquency rates. So the numbers are proving that he is on point. He has also advised intervention when there are problems in school at a young age with advice and counseling rather than punishment when possible. I just cannot handle how much I just love that. He believes this is often less expensive and more productive than waiting for problems to get worse. Don't get me wrong. I understand that there are a lot of times there's not the awareness of that first. There's not the help in the amount of people needed. There's not the support. There's not the money. There's not the time. I get it. But at the same time, understanding that what we have going up wrong doesn't change anything because we know what we need to do. So now we need to do it. Real quick, I'm trying to wait for this to load. I want to read you his own personal biography, um, like a little sample of it from the Loyola Chicago website, which some of it is repeated, but it's said in enough of a different way where it's like you're reading something new. He's just so, I just love him. Okay, so this is written by him, which is helpful. Because it gives you an idea of where he stands, what he really feels, what's important to him, all that fun stuff. My research focuses on issues in the social ecology of child and adolescent development. I have a long-standing interest in a wide range of violence-related issues. War, child maltreatment, childhood aggression, and juvenile delinquency. In 1991, I undertook missions for UNICEF to assess the impact of the Gulf War upon children in Kuwait and Iraq and have served as a consultant for programs serving Vietnamese, Bosnian, and Croatian children. I also serve as a scientific expert witness in criminal and civil cases involving issues of trauma, violence, and children. In all these issues, I am concerned with how developmental processes are shaped by the human ecology in which they occur and have a particular interest in matters of spirituality and identity in this process. After completing a project on physical aggression in girls, resulting in a book entitled See Jane Hit, Why Girls Are Growing More Violent and What We Can Do About It, I am currently working on a project dealing with childhood in the face of the terrorist threat. We'll come back to this, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit of Inside info, a picture to work with, a vision of the next portion we're going to talk about. So now you know him, Garbarino, and a little bit more about him, and that should set the tone for the next topic. Now we're getting to the meat in the middle. I just, I feel like I just made that up, but I also feel like I didn't. And on top of that, I'm grossed out by what I just said. That's so weird. It's weird that I would say that, but I, I said it. Um, okay, yeah, so this article I'm about to read to you, not verbatim, I'm going to do my best and keep it light and not super boring, because it's not boring at all. It's so fascinating. But this is the main part of it. This is what got the ball rolling for this episode. Because I again, I promised psychology and this is just, it's, it's too good to pass up. However, I will warn you that a little bit at the beginning is going to seem like, okay, we've heard this yet again, different, but it's just setting the tone for who James Garbarino is so that we can just dive right in. So as we know, he has a PhD. What you didn't probably know is that he didn't set out to spend so much of his life with murderers. He planned to be a lawyer, but somehow stumbled into a graduate program in human development and family studies at Cornell. 
He expected to spend his career teaching developmental psychology like his mentor, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, <laughs> PhD. But as a professor at Penn State, the Erickson Institute, Cornell, and since 2005, Loyola University, Chicago, Garbarino ended up becoming an expert on child abuse and neglect, a topic that ended up leading him to a new mission in life. In 1992, he was asked to testify as an expert witness in a child abuse case that ended with a mother killing her child. This was the first of more than 60 murder cases in which he has helped judges and juries understand the psychology behind why people kill and help them make more informed decision, decisions about a defendant's guilt and punishment. Ugh, amazing. So what he does is he reviews defendants' records, interviews their family and family members, like immediate family, and then on, like all the way out for those of us who have huge families like myself. And he spends hours listening to killers, often on death row, which makes sense, explains how they went from being innocent children to murderous adults. His goal is to explain the psychological and social factors, typically child abuse and war zone-like neighborhood environments. These contribute to a person's becoming a murderer. As he writes in his 2015 book, Listening to Killers, I listened for the human story behind the monstrous act. I was already sold on this, you guys, to, to do this week and on him in general. But that quote right there, I listened for the human story behind the monstrous act and I had to put down my iPad. I was just like, yes, that resonated with me, still does. Um, the monitor spoke to Garbarino about what he has learned from his work in jails and prisons around the country. And that's what we're going to get into now after a quick break for some ads or ad. I haven't decided yet. But um, yeah, we're going to get into what he's learned, what he's observed, what he's proven, what he's studied, all that. And let me tell you, it's nail biting. It's it's fascinating. If I say fascinating one more time, I'm going to punch myself. I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. You're probably ready to punch me too. Guess what? Same page. We are on the same page. Thanks for listening. Keep it up. I'll be back in a few. Want to make a difference in someone's life? There are millions of ways you can do that, but this one is extra special. It's something I've always wanted to do, and recently, I did the damn thing. I wrote to a prisoner. A prisoner who is desperate for a friendship outside the walls of prison. Write a Prisoner is an amazing program that allows you to search prisoners who are requesting letters from all over the world. You can do a basic search like age, maximum sentence length, even horoscope sign. Or you can do an advanced search, raising my hand over here, that's my jam, and get real specific. I chose all, which on the site is any, meaning no stipulations, but I felt pulled the most to an inmate on death row. You can search for as long or as little as you like. I searched for five and a half hours because I knew I would know as soon as I saw the one. Female, male, it didn't matter to me. The crime didn't matter. My search paid off because, as I suspected, I knew right away when I found my pen pal. I have zero doubts that this experience will impact my pal, but it'll probably impact me the most. I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> Curious? Head over to www.writeaprisoner.com and find your friend or friends because there is no limits to how many pen pals you write to, but it is highly suggested that you do not write to multiple prisoners at a single location. Go. Do it. For more information, go to www.writeaprisoner, that's W-R-I-T-E-A-P-R-I-S-O-N-E-R.com and change a life. Are murderers misunderstood? That's a great question. And I, for one, believe that a lot of the time they are. Not every time, but a lot of the time. The general public tends to view murderers as absolutely evil persons or people so damaged they can't possibly live among us. 
but most killers are untreated, traumatized children who are controlling the actions of the scary adults they have become. Think about that. Most killers are simply untreated, traumatized children who are, all they're doing is controlling the actions of the scary adults they have become. Because as children, they were traumatized. They have not received treatment. They grew into adults. They are expected. And this isn't just murderers or killers or crime uh, criminals. This is for everyone. We all have traumas. And we all have trauma as children as well. The severity of it definitely varies. But we this is applicable to every single person person simply because we are human beings and we're not perfect because our parents aren't perfect and our their parents weren't perfect and our kids aren't going to be perfect and just so on and so on it's a cycle okay I'm, I, I'm getting distracted this I'm surprised it happened this late in the game to be honest usually it's like a long time ago I'm off on my own tangent and then I remember what are we even doing here what what is the topic I'm doing my best like we all are so Trauma is fundamental, but a lot of the time, the general public doesn't see that part of it. They see the result of trauma rather than a murder's origins in trauma. So you, when you hear about the murder or the crime or what have you, I feel like we can use this to fill in the blank for anything. And if that makes it easier for you to relate, then please do so. Fill in the blank with whatever comes to mind for you. So what we see is after murder, we see the after effect. We don't see the the origins. All we see is what has happened because that trauma took place in the beginning. Most of what's been done in the past in these cases is either what's called a social history, which a social history is a biographical compendium or like a clinical assessment and diagnosis. But what I do, and by I, I mean James Garbarino, what he does is develop mental analysis. So often the social history has a lot of facts in it, but the facts are not connected conceptually. They can say, this kid's mother abandoned him, but don't go the next step about why maternal abandonment is so devastating. Basically, this is a boy. Okay, what about being a boy? Or this kid was abandoned, like we just said, about by his mother. Okay, how did that how did that affect him? Like why is maternal abandonment so effective and so it has such an impact on a person? Okay? It's we always see are like the cold hard facts. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, um, um okay, so or here's another thing. They'll talk about how someone was engaging in impulsive behavior as a teenager, but not why teenage brains are so vulnerable. This one is huge. So as a teenager, you're not even, it's so crazy because if you can think back to when you were a teenager, depending on your personality or your situation, what have you, I remember thinking I could rule the world. Like I truly believed that. I thought I was capable of anything and everything. It It's just like you look back and you realize Oh my God, I was just a damn baby. I was a baby. I was a baby out in the world making adult decisions. So take that a step further. Have these babies who are technically adults or you know what I mean, like older, have all these expectations of them and trauma. Add that to the mix. Shit, storm, am I right? I mean, this is crazy. If you think about this and break this down like I'm doing, like James did for us, it's It really brings a whole new perspective to the game, and I am here for it. So developmental psychology can also help unpack a lot of the clinical diagnosis. Severe, pervasive, chronic trauma in early childhood is such a frontal assault on the basic processes of child development, which are attachment, emotional regulation, and executive function. But when a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist sees them when they're 20 or 30, they may come up, they, so they see a person with all these things when they're 20 or 30, they might come up with all kinds of diagnosis when in fact, what they're simply doing is clumping together some of the outcomes from that early pervasive trauma. Again, it reminds me of when you're sick or something's going on, especially um, autoimmune diseases and you're given medicine or something. Listen, let's not mask the symptoms. Let's get to the root source. This is so you're giving these people like OCD or 
uh, bipolar disorder or anxiety, all of that stuff. Okay, but what you're doing is you're you're doing what you're saying now, but without the roots, like what happened to cause this, because get to that and uh, game over. You it, it's it's so crazy. Um, and so James also mentions that developmental psychology, it can be a bridge between social history and assessment and diagnosis. And I love that. So say you do have all these things going on. Okay, great. That obviously, if you've gotten these diagnosis, there's something there. However, there's also a root. So let's get to the root. But how do we how do we get to the root and then come back to he, the here and now and the diagnosis that we're seeing in the DSM? DS, I'm sorry, I'm getting way ahead of myself. How do we get to there from there to here? By doing this developmental psychology, you it, it's the bridge, bridge the gap. Seriously, like literally bridge the gap. Okay. Again, I'm getting really heated up, but I'm going to keep on. I am keeping on. I am not stopping. I have no time for that. Also, this is exciting. I love this. So, da da da. Hold on. My computer just stopped. Hey, I need you. Garberry goes on to talk about when he first started working on these issues. What struck him the most was when he went abroad to official war zones the Middle East, Central America, Africa. Kids growing up in those areas naturally adopted ways of looking at the world congruent with war zones. So basically how you would see everything around you as you're developing during war. When he came back to the United States, he was struck by the parallels with kids growing up in areas with high community violence, gangs, chronic threats, and even stress. He began to hear from these killers that they had developed a hypersensitivity to threat. That comes from being traumatized, having to be watchful. Think about it, fight or flight, but always in. So like when you're in fight or flight and you're stressed out at an office job or whatever, that's that's similar, but it's not the same. We're talking actual primal behavior. You you have to be watchful for your life. That's a that's war zone, even if you're not talking about a situation where there's war. Uh, Another dimension is the legitimization of aggression. The belief that when you're threatened, you are morally entitled and psychologically required to defend yourself. In the extreme form, there's a belief in preemptive assault. Get them before they get you. When you put together hypervigilance and a belief in preemptive assault, you get a war zone mentality. So he finds it useful in a lot of cases to communicate how and why if you live in an urban war zone, it's not surprising or far-fetched that you develop a war zone mentality. Not as a pathological development, but really as normal psychological development in an abnormal situation. Thus is war. It's you adapt to it how you have to, which is a normal psychological adaptation, but not within a normal situation because that's not normal. Garbarino is asked quite often, what are your work's implications? Basically, what you do and what you see and what you've studied and noticed and compiled, what does it imply? And basically, he answers like a badass and gives you a very detailed description of what it implies, which is if lots of killers are untreated, traumatized children controlling scary adults like we talked about earlier... One obvious place to start is to treat traumatized children. It's super simple. I know, it, it really is. It's like, I'm throwing my hands up in the air like, damn it, it's it's so easy. The answer's right there. It's so easy, but it's, oh, it's hard to implement, especially when you have a structure in society that's not necessarily there yet. Getting better, but... Well, here we go. I I spoke too soon. There's a growing movement toward trauma-informed communities, trauma-informed education, trauma-informed everything. For example, a colleague was talking about an eighth grader who was so traumatized about walking home from school. uh, No, sorry. An eighth grader who was so traumatized about walking from home to school through a very violent neighborhood that he would smoke weed before school to calm himself down. So then, because of that, he was expelled from school for being high. With a trauma-informed perspective, we'd treat that trauma, not expel someone for symptoms of unresolved trauma. I cannot handle the amounts of examples that are going through my brain right now from from myself growing up, 
from now, what things I do to treat now, and so many other things I've witnessed from other people. This is insanity. This is, you guys, he is on point. So this is true when you have kids diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and conflict disorders, because all these diagnoses that claim uh, to identify individuals who are aggressive and asocial. So if we unpack that, they should be treated as symptoms or consequences of untreated traumatic disorders. Another implication is the need to shift from the American gun culture to a demilitarized American culture. So basically, like, stop trying to arm yourself like you're in a fucking army or the military because you're not. And even if you were, that's... Okay, this is a little bit of a hot topic, if you can't tell. What differentiates us is the incredible physical cultural and psychological availability of guns. If you listen to killers, you hear how their possession of guns and their enemies' possessions of guns means that almost any conflict, which in other contexts would be resolved with minor injury if it went to that point, now because guns are involved, can end up being lethal. And last thing he says is sentencing. In Norway, the maximum sentence is 21 years. Our criminal justice system is handing out not just death sentences, but life without parole, which is really a sentence of death in prison. We need to roll back these extreme sentencing policies to be much more reasonable and driven by an appreciation for the possibility of rehabilitation and transformation, not absolute moral indignation that translates into execute them or lock them up forever. So much wants out right now inside of me that I cannot even... I can barely breathe, like, deep breaths. I have so many opinions on this that it's, like, almost physically painful. Could not agree more, and that's all you need to know right now because I got to get through this, and if I go off too far, oh, I don't know if we can get back on track. So agree, 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 agree times a million, a million, a million. (laughs) You guys, if you haven't already, please do this. Look up, there's this, like, funny video meme about Trump. Um, Well, it's not about Trump. It basically says, how much have I spent on my dog or dogs? And then it's all these videos of Trump, millions and millions and millions and millions. And as I'm doing this, I realize I cannot remember what episode, but I've definitely mentioned this before. Forgot about it. Either way, it's that good. Obviously, if I'm bringing it up again later. So yeah, check that out if you want to laugh because it's pretty freaking funny. That one gets me every time. Among a lot of other questions that James answers, this is another one that he answers often. And it's also one that I've heard asked often. And it's one that I think about often. No, it's not nature versus nurture, but it's pretty close to it as far as questions go with murderers and uh, rehab and their ability to recover. So he's asked a lot if this is true. Can or cannot murderers be cured? He answers that some can, some can't. Probably more than most people suspect can recover. Modern neuroscience is telling us both about the immaturity of the brains of adolescents, which often extends to 20 and 25-year-olds. We'll come back to that in a second because that's crazy, but so accurate. But also about the malia. (laughs) Okay, I have tried when I'm not recording... I have no problem. Apparently, when I'm recording, I refused. My brain's like, we are not going to say this word correctly. We're not going to do it. Malleability, which is also, think of adaptability, okay? So let me say that again because I really got off topic there because what was I even saying? That's probably what you're asking. Here, I'm about to tell you again. So we were talking about um, the immaturity of the brains of adolescents, which 20 and 25 year olds are considered adolescent. That is so mind blowing. But it also he also talks about the malleability of adult brains, which is like the ability for the brain to be shaped and to adapt. Okay, that's what I was trying to get at. Five years later, anyway, that's good news, obviously, because it means the brain is in an interactive relationship with experience. I'm going to say that again, because that's huge. This is good news because it means that the brain is in an interactive relationship with experience. 
If you change the experience, you can change the brain. What a hopeful message. Can I just say that? Like, seriously, that's so it's just basically saying there's you, you can mess up or you can not fully understand something or you can react a certain way. But if you change the experience and if you work on that, your brain can literally change this is something that I don't have the time to get into because it would be a, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I say it all the time. A whole other podcast, not even a whole other episode. This is straight up a whole other podcast because our brains are so kill, like they're killer, pun intended. It's amazing. And science is showing so many things. And if you think that's exciting, just think of this. It's never going to stop. We're going to keep learning, keep seeing things, keep on things are unfolding constantly. It is exciting. It's so exciting. But back to the 20 and 25 year old thing. There were times when I was 25 or 24 or 23. And I had a pretty good grasp on things. But there were times when things were murky. And I and I just instinctively knew. Hmm, I'm not I'm not there yet, which I'm, I would also be thinking, but I'm supposed to be, I'm 24 or whatever age. That's not true. And now, like, now we know why, because those brains can still be considered adolescent. So I'm not saying you're off the hook, but you're kind of off the hook in some way, shape or form, as far as that goes. If you're at all like me, there's a very good chance that you're wondering the same thing I am, which is the same thing this person was wondering when they asked James this question. They wanted to know if the legal system is starting to embrace his way of thinking. His response is that it is starting to percolate. In Miller versus Alabama and Graham versus Florida, the Supreme Court has started to get this. In Miller, the court ruled that mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole were unconstitutional for juvenile offenders. I'd like to throw in there my opinion real quick. I think it's unconstitutional for like a lot of people adults included. How that we got that out of the way. <laughs> the Miller decision extended the court's 2010 ruling in Graham, which outlawed mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole for juveniles connected, convicted, convicted, conniving, night, what, what? For juveniles convicted of all crimes except murder. <laughs> See, they're getting there, but they're just not quite there. It's like, I just want to nudge them closer and closer. Like, get it, figure it out. You got it. You're getting there. Stop being shy. Just take the leap. Okay, moving on. There are now about 2,500 cases around the country of individuals who committed murders as teenagers and were automatically sentenced to life without parole. They may now be getting resentenced. That's accurately, that needs to be. It absolutely needs to be. At the time they committed the murders, someone might have been asked to predict if they would ever be safe to release. Now, in most cases, we have 10, 15, 25 years of evidence to go on. We don't have to project and predict. We now can say retroactively what did happen. In lots of the cases, that has been very positive and encouraging. More and more now, He's interested in take in talking with guys who have undergone such transformation. It's so painful for them. They've accepted the shame of what they did and the need to radically transform and do penance by suffering, by being institutionalized, having to demonstrate every day that they're capable of being a better person. But often they feel that the system doesn't reward or encourage that. They need support and encouragement. To me, it's more than that. It's their basic right. I'm doing my best, guys. I really am. It's not easy for me, but I'm really reining it in, believe it or not. <laughs> so he goes on to talk about a parole case that he's working on right now, where the guy was turned down for parole after 20 years, despite the fact that he had a folder of evidence three inches thick about how he had rehabilitated. But the victim's family and prosecutor said in the hearing, we don't care if you're rehabilitated. You should spend the rest of your life in jail because of what you did. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to just swallow that and just go on with his answer. If that's their mindset, then there's nothing to do. This is in conflict with the law because the law says the parole decision is supposed to be based on rehabilitation, 
not on the families and prosecutors' outrage about the crime. If forgiveness by the family is a criterion, almost no one would get out. Thank you. That barely skims the surface, but my God, is it so? Thank you. He says it perfectly. So, (laughs) this is like physically draining, trying to hold in all of my opinions. And also, I just want to talk to this guy and like pick his brain and just talk forever. Okay, so what's next for him? For James Garbarino, he talks about how his current work is prompted in part by the Miller decision. In Illinois, for example, there are about 90 cases, mostly guys who got life without parole as teenagers, whose cases are now being reviewed. I'm participating in those pre-sentencing hearings. Thank God. Yes, they, I wish, I hope they know they've got a good one on their side. Um, That was me again. <laughs> A similar process is beginning in Florida, and I'm playing a role there, too. I see this as the logical next step for me. Listening to Killers, which is his book, by the way, one of his, focuses mostly on how people got to killing. Now, I'm mostly focusing on where they go after killing. Oh, God, I couldn't love this anymore. I've also been involved in a few parole cases where people spent up to 20 years in prison, but now it's five years after that they were out. So wait, hold on. (laughs) You should see, I look like I'm in a rap video, but I'm not. I'm just in my studio doing a podcast. Not rap at all. Okay. I've also been involved in a few parole cases where people spent up to 20 years in prison, but now it's five years after they were let out. Okay. So they spent 20 years in prison, then they were let out. How are they doing out there? And was it the right decision to release them? Also interesting, just because you have a sentence and you serve it and then you're out doesn't mean you're any better off than the person who had that inch three inch thick file of evidence and they said that the prosecutor and the family said no because they're so mad about the crime even though he's obviously got these evidence evidence and show how he's been rehabilitated but he's still in jail how's that fair when you could have the opposite somebody serve their time whatever like just because they serve their time doesn't mean anything it's like, a, I, I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels here. But that person's out because they serve their time because that's all that matters. No, that's not all that matters at all. That's like one part of so many other parts and all those other parts are way more important than that. You've got to look at the bigger picture in everything. Okay. Uh, he continues on that he's interested in the process of rehabilitation. Same. The therapeutic interventions, education, spiritual development, that lets murderers come back as people who are not just safe, but in some cases, oh my God, I can't. Okay. I don't don't know why this is making me cry because it's so beautiful. It's what I've always believed. And finally, I've found somebody who has credentials because people care about that as they should. I'm not, I'm not shitting on credentials at all, but Basically, he's taking this out of my heart and my brain and my mind. And I just, I'm so glad, you guys, I'm so glad I'm not the only one that feels this way. Because for so long, I I feel like I am, even still, knowing he's out there. It's like, now I feel like maybe two people, me and him. I know that's not true. I'm not trying to sound like I feel special. It's just, okay, I'm going to start this sentence, this paragraph over. And I'm going to continue rubbing my face while I do so. What's it to you? Okay. He says, talks about how he's interested in the process of rehabilitation, the therapeutic interventions, education, spiritual development that lets murderers come back as people who are not just safe, but in some cases, magnificent in their emotional sensitivity, moral principles, and motivation to contribute to society and be a positive force. People assume there's a strong positive correlation between the severity of the crime people commit as young people and the degree to which these individuals are irremediable and cannot be transformed. But particularly with young killers, that correlation doesn't seem to be there. And he has the work to prove it. Read his books. Uh, We have Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turn Violent and How We Can Save Them. That was in 1999. In 2007, he has 
his other book, See Jane Hit, Why Girls Are Growing More Violent and What We Can Do About It. Then 2015, he writes, Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases. Plus, so much more. He speaks publicly at events. He can. He's obviously a professor, like we mentioned at Loyola. He's amazing, and his work is changing shit up. And I will prove that to you in a minute after this quick little break. And I will continue with other articles and other research by people that aren't him, and they're not about him. But it is showing that it, it, things are changing as they should be. I'll be right back. Hey, do me a favor real quick and go to your app store. Then download Traffic Cam. It's spelled T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K-C-A-M. And it'll look like a white square with the letter E and the letter I. And the letter I will have a blue dot over it. What this app does is it helps you combat sex trafficking simply by uploading pictures of the hotel rooms you stay in when you travel. Because let's be honest, you're taking the pictures anyways. Probably to send to your friends and make them jealous or even just for yourself. Either way, take it a step further and add those photos to this app to help investigators search and find other images with this hotel room or a similar room just like it so that they can get more info and and narrow down these crazy elusive sex trafficker people i mean they are people believe it or not what they do is just inhumane though because a lot of times traffickers will post photos of their victims post in these hotel rooms that you're staying at for online advertisements. These pictures can become evidence and they can be used to find and prosecute the perpetrators of these crimes. So, in order to use these pictures, investigators need you to help them out by uploading pictures of where you're staying and make it known where you're staying. That way they can take this picture and say, this is the Hilton, blah, 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 wherever. Or this is... I don't even know. Days in. I I don't know. I feel like they probably have everything you can imagine. Do it today. Because taking these photos that, like I said, you're probably already taking and adding them to this app, it won't take much time and it could save so many lives. And it could really, really help investigators out. Do the right thing. Take the pictures and send them to this app. So, we're rolling? Okay, good. Just making sure we're rolling because that would be devastating. Um, We're going to talk about the fact that, uh like thinking about school shootings or just like random crimes. Like, for example, there's James Holmes, the 24-year-old who in 2012 killed 12 people at a screening of Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Colorado, was quoted as being a super nice kid um, by a high school friend. Ed Gain, also known as the Butcher of Plainfield, killed two women in the 1950s and adding them to a collection of corpses he'd collected from graveyards. Someday we might talk about him, but I mean, I'm trying to get to other people first because that's like a crazy, that would be like weeks of stuff for me to try to rein it in. He, the one who just did all that, was described by a neighbor as just the guy to call in to sit with the kitties when me and the old lady want to go to the show. If you're not terrified by that sentence, then I don't even know how you what i i don't i i this is not an act i literally don't know what how to even go on from that so i'm not going to try because i clearly can't handle it that's in that's mind-blowing is that the is that what i'm trying is that a good way is it okay whatever um you want to do this for me and i'm not being i'm not kidding like i just i'm starting to just trip over everything okay Well, offer stands if you want to. I'm here. You can just step right over here and take over. Um, (laughs) So basically, what I'm trying to let you know about is the fact that you just don't know, which isn't exactly what we were talking about with James Garbarino, but it's part of it. Because basically, 
if we're incapable of knowing what others are capable of, do we know what we could potentially do? Most of us, after all, have thought about committing murder. David Buss, professor of psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, surveyed 5,000 people for his book, The Murderer Next Door, Why the Mind is Designed to Kill, and found that 91% of men and 84% of women had thought about killing someone, often with very specific hypothetical victims and methods in mind. The terrifying reality is that we're biologically predisposed to violence in certain situations, like war or other, like fight or flight, like we've been talking about previously. Douglas Fields, a neuroscientist and author of the book Why We Snap, says our brains have evolved to monitor for danger and spark aggression in response to any perceived danger as a defense mechanism. We all have the capacity for violence because in certain situations it's necessary for our survival. You don't need to be taught defense aggression because it's a life-saving behavior that's unfortunately sometimes required. Basically, it, you don't need to be taught aggression. Ag- I keep saying aggression. Aggression? Why was I saying it like that? And why weren't you guys stopping me? Oh, Lord. This is interesting. Me and the information I'm giving you. Um, yeah, you don't need to be taught it because it's inside of you. You might not have it. You might not have had a time where it's been activated yet, but I assure you it's in you. Fight or flight, if you need to survive, you're going to do it. You're going to do what you have to do. It's kind of like what I mentioned in the um, survival tips episode a couple back. Acting, people have acted before to just play the role and like use their brain because in that moment, that was their best chance. You're going to do what you have to do. You just don't know what, you can't always plan for that, but you're, you're going to do it. You're going to try to survive it. You, you can't not do it. It's like when you hear about people who have survived the Golden Gate Bridge, if they've jumped off, which is few and far between, do not do that. Um, Or any other suicide attempt where once it's past that point and they've made the trigger decision which it usually is they want to go back almost instantaneously it's so similar to that um so yeah i mean like i was saying they these responses have to be quick so as to effectively deal with dangerous situations here's the problem they can often be overly sensitive of course it goes wrong like when the burglar alarm has a misfire Our brain never evolved to deal with the situations and threats encountered in that environment. The modern world presses on the defense mechanism circuitry in ways that can lead to misfires. I can tell you right now, being a super sensitive to just energy in general, like sounds, emotions in the room, within five minutes of being somewhere, I can be so drained. I could have just woken up and felt amazing and be so drained I need an eight-hour nap. I'm not kidding. It's similar to that overload. That's a great way to describe it. I'm just overloaded. That can happen to us so easily. This is not an opinion. This is fact. Look at the amount of crime committed in rage. Not a conniving crime, but a rage-induced aggressive response. They are people who gave no reason to believe previously that they had aggressive tendencies. This isn't to say we're entirely at the whim of these aggressive reflexes. Being aware of how our brain works can help us temper our responses to perceived threats. Ideally, we could all recognize that stress makes us overly sensitive, and so we'd understand that the jolt of rage we feel when we're late for an appointment meeting or someone cuts through traffic is a misfiring rather than an appropriate response. Because when you take that as an appropriate response, that's when you have people shooting people over road rage. It's super simple, you guys. It's so simple. We just need to make everyone else aware and make ourselves aware and just keep up with things as we're learning and not stay stuck behind or I mean like he said it's not opinion it's fact so just like do research okay I can't tell you I can't force you to but just please do that'd be great um another thing it'd be really great for like middle school high school or I even think elementary even before that to be honest should be taught about these biological triggers for aggression because considering that the prefrontal what prefrontal cortex there we go you guys i'm so glad you're still here thank you (laughs) the part of the brain that inhibits and controls the threat detection mechanism it's not fully developed in teenagers see the previous section go rewind and listen to that 
you can use biology to help a teenager understand specifically why they're angry and understand that it's a misfire so that there's no advantage in an aggressive response. I think that's helpful and better than telling them to control their anger. You're asking them to do something that their brain is not equipped to do. Thank you, Fields. Clapping over, I can't clap. I'm holding my iPad right now so I can read you guys this information, even though it seems like I'm not. It seems like I'm just saying words or trying to. I really am holding this. I can't do it, but I'm clapping in my mind's eye. So good. So amazing. Okay. I'm almost done. So I've got a couple more things. So I got to stay focused. And that's for me, not you guys. What do you, You're just sitting in your car and your shower at home at work, whatever. This is on me, not you. Just relax. Also on me, not you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. I got it. Didn't, I don't need comments from the peanut gallery. Thank you, though. Appreciate it. Okay, so societal pressures, including cultural norms and legal guidelines, do influence our biological impulses to murder. And the rate of human violence varies considerably across time periods and cultures. But while we're not controlled by the evolutionary impulses in our brain, we're also not free from them either. It's comforting to think that those people who commit violence, you know, that just because they did that, they're a criminal and fundamentally different from you. But plenty of criminals used to think the same. Basically, you are not separate. You are also at risk. It's 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 there. It's just all these things that come together to kind of like nature versus nurture, but it's more than that. It's so much more. It's so much more in depth. But we, it's not something that's something that like we can't understand. We can understand it. You just have to take the time and you have to keep an open mind and you have to watch and listen and learn and realize, okay, see it. It's like a cycle. It'll all fill in. It'll all fill in. Just start somewhere. And that's what I'm trying to do right now and help everyone see. All right. So now I'm going to take a second. I'm not taking a break. Not on the show anyways. In real life I am because I got to get to this last bit I want to talk to you guys about and then wrap it up. So Hang on tight. It's going to be like two seconds because I'm coming right back. But for me, I'm hoping maybe like two minutes. We'll see. I hope you enjoyed that two seconds because we're going we're going in this and we're going to finish. It's going to be great. So this next one is something that is technically different, but it all all of this ties in together. And keep in mind, there's a lot of other shit out there that ties into this, but I only have so much time each week. And so I really wanted to get a good rounded base for you guys and wrap it all up into one bow and show you like hey it's all connected like this just keeps on feeding on and then we're going over here now and now we're over here but at the same time we could go from all the way over here back to the beginning and it's all relative so I don't know if you feel this way but as far as history's monsters or serial killers or just like people doing not even just like a crime here or a crime there or murder here or murder there, but like the people you like Ed Gein, like I was talking about last one. It's insane to think about how they got to that point. But because because well, because if you think about it, they had to overcome a lot of powerful wiring to commit the crimes they did. But Well, okay, I'm not making sense, am I? Oh, I'm so sorry. Basically, our brains are pretty, they're so extravagant, but they're also simple in the way that we're wired for certain things. And to, to stray from that, you have to overcome some seriously crazy stuff. Or I wonder, is it that there was just miswiring to begin with? like problems right from the start. That's also another podcast because there is so much studies about that, including head injuries, like being considered normal in quotes, because what even is that? Again, why do we say that? Why do I even say that? You know what I mean. And having something bad happen to you versus like straight from the get go, like there was something off the whole time, those types of things. Because our brain is naturally coded for compassion, for guilt, for a kind of empathic pain that causes the person inflicting harm to feel a degree of suffering that is in many ways as intense as what the victim is experiencing. I can relate to this in the sense that when I'm watching or find out about something, 
not that I seek this out because I usually shut it down or can see it coming and I just don't, don't go there. But with animal abuse, if, if they sneak that into me, my news feed and stuff, my skin is on literal fire and I can't breathe. You guys, it is like I am there and not doing anything about it. And it is the most painful thing. So I feel like if you've ever felt that way, picture that because that's what's normal. And especially when you consider murder. So basically, this study was published in the journal Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience to bring science a step closer to understanding exactly what goes on in the brain of a killer. So as we know, psychopaths don't sit still for science. And ordinary, again, what does that even mean? People can't be made to think so savagely. Nearly anyone can imagine what it would be like to commit the kind of legal homicide that occurs in war. So we can't picture this murder, or if we can, we're just like detached enough where we just can't fully engage. But we can f- we can picture that in war because war has been kind of like accepted, if that makes sense. Um, sidebar, I want to mention the fact that psychopaths, well, I don't have time for that tonight. But yeah, I don't have time for that tonight, but it's... It, we can't all think of it as like, that means you're going to murder everyone or that you're always thinking about murdering. There's so many different stages, but we'll come back to that another time. Trust me. I promise. Um, so to study how the brain reacts when it confronts such murder made moral, which what a beautiful way to describe war. Murder made moral. <gasps> I like that. Okay. Psychologist Pascal Mullenbergs of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, recruited 48 subjects and asked them to submit to functional magnetic resonance imaging, so functional MRI, which could scan their brains while they watched three different scenarios on video loops. So in one, a soldier would be killing an enemy soldier. In the next, the soldier would be killing a civilian. And in the last, used as a control, the soldier would shoot a weapon but hit no one. That's my kind of jam. Like, show me that. I can't handle the rest. <laughs> For real. In all cases, the subjects saw the scene from the shooter's point of view. This is so interesting. At the end of each loop, they were asked, who did you shoot? Bas- oh, my God, this is brilliant. So basically made to be be the one standing in the shoes of the shooter and they were required to press one of three buttons on a keypad indicating a soldier civilian or no one which is a way of making sure that they knew what they'd done like they have to answer so they have to know what they did and pay attention after the scans they were also asked to rate on a one to seven scale how guilty they felt in each scenario i am so here for this okay So even before the study, apparently, Mollenbergs knew that when he read the scans, he would focus first on the activity in the uh, orbitofrontal cortex, which is a region of the forebrain, which, again, front, that has long been known to be involved with moral sensitivity, moral judgments, and making choices about how to behave. So basically, when you're out in college and you're drunk, that shuts down because you're dancing on tape. I'm just kidding. I'm not, but I mean, you got to lighten it up a little bit. That's what I'm here for. Hi, Bert here. The nearby temporoparietal junction, TPJ, also takes on some of this moral load, processing the sense of agency, the act of doing something deliberately and therefore owning the responsibility for it. That doesn't always make much of a difference in the real world. Whether you shoot someone on purpose or the gun goes off accidentally, the victim is still dead. But it makes an enormous difference in how you later reckon with what you've done. Oh, you guys, if you're not soaking this shit up, please tell me what I'm doing wrong. I can't be the only one. This is so amazing. In Mollenberg's study, there was consistently greater activity in the lateral portion of the OFC when subjects imagined shooting civilians when than when they shot shoulders. Seriously? They shot shoulders. When they shot shoulders. I'll start that again for your benefit so you can actually understand what the fuck I'm saying. In Molenberg's study, there was consistently greater activity in the lateral portion of the OFC when subjects imagined shooting civilians than when they shot soldiers. <laughs> That's like a, can we write that down as like a new warm up? Seriously, thank you. That's all, I'm not kidding. I will do it. Thank you. <clears throat> there was also more coupling between the OFC and the TPJ. 
with the OFC effectively saying, I feel guilty, and the TPJ effectively answering, you should. Holy shit. Significantly, the degree of OFC activation also correlated well with how bad the subjects reported they felt on their 1 to 7 scale, with greater activity in the brains of people who reported feeling greater guilt. So mine, even when I'm not doing anything wrong, we're talking like a 10 out of 7. <laughs> Anyone else? I'm cra- I am seriously cracking myself up tonight. I'm here for it. Hope you are too. That'd be a, a bonus. The OFC and TPJ weren't alone in this moral processing. Another region known as the fusiform gyrus or gyrus. You guys, I used to know this because I was in nursing school, but the fusiform gyrus, whatever, G-Y-R-U-S, it's fine, was more active when subjects imagined themselves killing civilians. A telling finding since that portion of the brain is involved in analyzing faces, suggesting that the subjects were studying the expressions of their imaginary victims and, in doing so, humanizing them. When subjects were killing soldiers, there was greater activity in a region called the lingual gyrus, again, whatever, which is involved in the much more dispassionate business of spatial reasoning, just the kind of thing you need when you're going about the colder business of killing someone you feel justified killing. That is so... (sighs) You guys, I can't think of a better word than fascinating because I'm fascinated right now. Soldiers and psychopaths are, of course, two different emotional species, but among people who kill legally and those who kill criminally or promiscuously, 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 (laughs) promiscuously, you guys just take it, okay, take it. The same brain regions are surely involved, even if they operate in different ways. In all of us, it's clear that murders, neural roots, and moral roots are deeply entangled. Learning to untangle them a bit could one day help psychologists and criminologists predict who will kill and stop them before they do. That reminds me, have you guys ever, I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was quite some time ago. I was fairly young. There was a movie where they could predict a crime before it was happening and then stop them and like they would intervene right before it was happening and arrest these people. Even at the age I was at that time, I realized, oh, this is interesting because the crime hasn't been committed yet. But because of the science, it was so far evolved that it was going to be. And we were at a time, you guys, it's called willingness to suspend disbelief. I can do it at the drop of a hat. Ask me to do it. I'm there. I'm in a castle and I'm flying with fairy wings. I mean, I can do this. So I don't blame you if you're not following along or if it takes you forever to do that or if you can't at all. I was just like, okay, so they have the science to prove that. But I'm just like, now we're into a whole different argument. Like, what if the science is faulty? I mean, it was just so interesting to me. And that's kind of what that made me think of. However, time's up. I mean, because I'm saying it is because I'm starting to get a little loopy, as we all know. And while that's fun, I still have a lot to do today. So I'm going to cut it off here. And let you guys know that I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm so glad to have finally gotten a chance to do a pure psychology only episode. And don't you worry. If you notice, I I talked a lot about murder, too. I mean, that's inevitable. But as such, it's also inevitable that I'll talk about psychology continuously throughout the season in other episodes, regardless of what the topic is or case or cold case or whatever. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope you got out of it as much as I did. I feel like I actually did learn some stuff tonight and I'm constantly reading about this stuff. So I feel very happy. I feel like I had a good full meal, but for my brain. Does that make sense? Anyways, time for me to move on with my day. I love you all so very much. If you're still hanging in there listening, pat yourself on the back, grab a drink. You've earned it. All jokes aside, I really do appreciate my fans and listeners. And I talked a while ago about reading letters and uh, mail and and just stuff sent to me. And I haven't done that yet because I'm notorious for promising things and then not following through. But my intentions are good. And I almost did one tonight, but it just felt a little off and I didn't know for sure. And then I don't even have it with me right now. So what can you do? I'll tell you what, I can roll it on to next week, hopefully. Okay. So either way, if it's not next week, it's going to happen soon because it's inevitable. I've got too much there that I've got to just give feedback and thank you all for all the mail, all the reaching out, all the support. 
um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I that talking about it is just going to keep the day going for hours longer. And we just I need to cut it off now. Okay, so you are appreciated. I'm not trying to leave you. I'm not trying to get off like get off the phone, get off the phone, mom, I got to go by. It's not like that. Also, mom, if you're listening, you had better not believe that because you're the only person I answered the phone for sidebar. Okay have a good week, have a good night, have a good day, whatever, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, you're well, you are loved, you are appreciated. And I am so grateful for you. I will see you all next week. Bye. Peace out. Jarberino has served at, wait, did I say Garberino or Jarberino? Hmm. Dilemma. Jarberino. I'm going to go with Jar. No, Garberino. You know what? You might hear both. I don't know. So we're going to do Garberino. Let me start this over. What? I said what? What did I say? Garberry? Oh my, oh my God, I did. Garberino. Duh. Garberino. Garberino. Oh my God, I did, didn't I? I said it. Did I say it? Did I say more than one? Fuck. I don't know. Okay. And that's regarding... Oh my God, can I talk? Do I remember how? Do I know words? Do I know what they mean? Sometimes I wonder. This is a Yellow Wave production.